This morning's lesson is taken from chapter 4, Mark's Gospel, verses, sorry, verses 35 to the end. That day when evening was come, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drowned? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obeyed him. Here ended the reading of this lesson. Thank you very much. Just move the furniture around a bit. There we go. Joan, thank you for that reading. Thank you. <clears throat> the sun blazed down out of an azure blue sky and sent a heat haze shimmering across the desert floor. So began my English O-level, that's GCSE to most of you, English O-level essay exam answer some uh, five and a half decades ago. And you'll be wondering why he remembers this so well. Uh, well, it's because of the circumstances under which the essay was written and uh, the amount of work that went into producing it. You see, the English O-level essay exam in those days was a single question exam, and when you turned over the paper, you were offered typically 10 titles or subjects, and you were invited to write an essay of four or five pages on one of those subjects. It seemed quite daunting until uh, perhaps a term, maybe a term and a half before the exam, our English teacher came into the, exam, to the classroom and proceeded to fill the blackboard. Yes, we had blackboards and chalk in those days fill the blackboard with a hundred essay titles and subjects. These were the ten subjects from each of the ten previous years. And it appeared to be a completely disparate set of titles. We, we couldn't make any sense out of it at all until he began to point out that while the titles varied from year to year, in fact, certain themes recurred year after year. There was nearly always a title that represented some kind of a journey, there was a title that represented something about something maybe being lost or being found. There was a, always a title about some kind of adventure, maybe a battle or some uh, daring do. Well, it began to make sense and begin to take shape. And then our teacher said to us, okay, what I want you to do is I want you to pick one of those themes and write an essay on it. So we did. 
And we handed it in, and a day or two later it came back, and it had all the usual corrections of spelling and grammar and those sorts of things. But it was also covered with useful notes saying, expand this point, it's good. Use more descriptive language here. Add a bit that tells us what happens next. And so we then rewrote the essay and handed it in and got it back and handed it in and got it back. And after four or five times, it was beginning to get nicely honed. And then he said, right, now pick another theme from the list. Oh, sir, we haven't got to write another essay, have we? No, you haven't. What you have to do is weave the second theme into the story you already have. And a few weeks later, he said, pick a third theme and weave that into the same story. And so it went on until we got everything covered that we thought And we arrived at the examination, and the invigilator said, you can turn over your paper. And I turned over my paper and saw the title, Lost Property. Picked up my pen and wrote, the sun blazed down out of an azure blue sky. (laughs) And so it went on. Let's take a moment to pray. Father God, you have given us ears to hear And we ask that you will help us to hear your word clearly. What you say to us and help us to have understanding minds and receptive hearts to respond to you and your words for your kingdom's sake. Amen. Amen. How good it is to know the examination question before you get into the examination room. I don't know if you have much experience of that. But that's what happened to us in English because it allows you, if you know what the question is going to be, to plan your answer, to at least do your homework and your research and be prepared to say something in answer to the question when it comes. And I believe an examination date has been set An examination question has been set. If you've still got your Bible open from the reading that Joan kindly read for us, keep your finger in there for the moment in chapter 4 of Mark and turn over three pages in the church Bibles and you'll come to what appears to be the beginning of chapter 9. But we're actually looking at the end of chapter 8. The end of chapter 8. You see, at the moment, we're in the middle of a series of sermons on the beginning chapters of Mark's Gospel. In a little while, we're going to change to a different sermon series, and we'll probably come back to Mark's Gospel maybe in the new year or something and carry it on. So we're not quite going to get in this series up as far as chapter 8. So I'm not pinching anybody's uh, sermon thoughts here at the moment. But in uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 27, that's in the top left-hand Uh, column of page 1012, we find that Jesus and his disciples went to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is in the north of the country, north of Galilee. And on the way, probably from one village to another, he said to them, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And they replied, some say you're John the Baptist, some say that you're Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. And Jesus might have said, well done, good, one mark. Now, for the remaining 99 marks, what about you? 
Who do you say that I am? And if you don't know what happened there, you can read the next couple of verses to find out what happened there. See, for our purpose this morning, it's the question that's important. Who do you say I am, Jesus asks. There's the exam question. It hasn't come yet. For the disciples, it's four pages further on, four chapters further on, maybe four months, I don't know, further on. But the disciples have already started to think about the question. In the passage that we had read to us, the question comes up. The disciples are in a boat. Jesus has been preaching and teaching, telling parables that we heard about last week. And he says to his disciples, let's get into the boat and go over to the other side of the lake. Leaving the crowds behind, we're back in verse 36. They took him along just as he was and there were other boats with him. And a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Even the disciples who were fishermen appeared to be frightened by this storm. It's a very violent storm and they're worried for their lives. And they go to Jesus and they say, teacher, teacher, don't you care if we drown? I don't know if you imagine yourself in these situations from time to time, whether you're one of the people who just reads the words in the Bible and and takes the story in and glosses over it, or whether you stop and think, well, what would it really have been like? And I can imagine the boat's tossing and the wind's blowing and the sail is tearing and people are bailing, trying to keep the water out of the boat and Jesus staggers to his feet in the tossing boat. He grabs a moss stay puts a foot up onto one of the thwarts and at the top of his voice says, Quiet! Be still! And just like that, it is. The wind has died away to nothing. The tossing lake is now like a mirror. The only sound for the moment is the sail dripping into knee-deep water in the boat. And I imagine the disciples' mouths open, looking at each other, until one of them swallows hard and whispers to his friend, Who is this man? Who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And the words are a little little different, but there's our examination question. It's come up in their minds. Who is this man? The question has been growing in their minds, I think. Before the disciples ask their question, Jesus asks them one, verse 40, Why are you afraid? Do you still not have any faith? Why should the disciples have faith? Because of what they have already seen and heard. Let's have a little review. We've come to chapter 4. If you'd like to briefly turn back to chapter 1, at least for the headings. In chapter 1... The disciples meet a new preacher, 
John the Baptist introduces him. In John's Gospel, John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Two of John's disciples have been following Jesus. And they say, Where are you from? And he says, Come and see. One of them is Andrew. And what they see is frankly amazing. Evil spirits obey this man. Peter's mother-in-law, who's been sick with a fever, is healed and gets up and serves them. A leper has his leprosy healed. Who is this man? Well, a wonder worker of some sort. But also a man of prayer. They get up in the morning and find that Jesus isn't there. He's gone out to a quiet place to pray and they go and look for him. The questions begin to form in their mind. Who is this man? In chapter 2, some friends bring a man who's paralyzed on a mat. And they can't get him into Jesus. They have to tear open the roof and lower him down on ropes. At least his friends think that Jesus is significant. And Jesus forgives his sin. The teachers of the law make up their mind about him pretty quickly. Why does this man speak like this? Only God can forgive sins. They decide, whoever he is, he's not God. And yet Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man. If you've not come across that phrase before, look up Daniel chapter 7 at some point. And you'll find that the title is given to somebody who comes before God and is given authority and power and the right to rule. Jesus claiming to be the Son of Man is claiming that authority, that power. And yet, he's a man who associates with outcasts and sinners. How can he be God mixing with those sorts of people? But Jesus says, I haven't come to call righteous people, to call you good people. I've come to call sinners to repentance. Later, they challenge him about fasting on the Sabbath. And he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. The questions continue to grow. Who is this man? Chapter 3, he heals on the Sabbath. The man with the withered hand. And the people there say, well, it's not right to heal on the Sabbath. And they try and accuse Jesus and they decide they want to kill him and get rid of him. They've decided who he is, somebody to be got rid of. More healings follow and demons are dealt with by the sea. Incidentally, the demons know who he is. You are the son of God, they say. Surely the disciples who heard it must have thought, really? And the questions continue to form in their minds. His family decide that he's out of his mind and they try and take him into custody. He confronts and is confronted by religious leaders over his origin. Everyone is asking, who is this man? In chapter 4, Jesus taught many things with parables. The Old Testament prophets told us that God would speak in parables. The sower, the word of God given out and how we receive it. 
the light, what we do with what we have received. The seeds, how things start small and grow and become a great tree and a kingdom. He talks about kingdom and he obviously means his kingdom. On the one hand, they're stories anyone can understand, yet they all need thinking through. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. And now he calms the storm. And the fear of the storm is replaced with the fear of Jesus. Jesus asked them, do you still have no faith? No faith in Jesus' word. He had said, we're going to the other side. He didn't say, we're going to the bottom. Did they trust him? No faith in Jesus' presence. He is here with them in the boat. He's not separated from them. He's going with them. And no faith in his power. Power to bail a bucket or pull an oar, well, maybe. But much more significantly, power to calm the storm and keep his word. Which leads us to a question, doesn't it? Do we still have no faith? Have we got faith in Jesus' word, in his promises, in the seeds that he sows that become a great place where people can be safe, the birds can nest in it? Do we have faith in his presence when Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you, I will be with you always? Do we have faith in his power? His power to forgive our sin. His power to bring us into the presence of God without spot or blemish. Will we know what we are going to say when, if Jesus asks us, who do you say that I am? Where do we put our faith and why the question will indeed come we have time to prepare our answer because each of us must at some point ask ourselves the question who is this man who is this man amen